Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. In this episode, I share a conversation with Wendy Ashley Cooper. Wendy is a highly respected educational leader and visionary. Wendy was the Glennie School principal for 15 years and worked hard to create a culture that inspired students and staff to become all they can be. However, like many strong leaders, her life story is filled with unexpected twists and turns. In our conversation today, we cover what it was like growing up in South Africa, arriving in Australia to a non-English speaking immigration camp, moving countless times and learning how to fit in to avoid being bullied, how she developed her sense of self and faith over the years, what life has taught her and what advice she would give to her younger self and people who are doing it tough. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Wendy Ashley Cooper. Welcome, Wendy Ashley Cooper, to the School of Wellbeing. Oh, thank you, Meg. It's wonderful to be talking with you again. I am so excited to have you on this episode because you have so much to offer in your story and in your wisdom and you have had a significant impact in my life. You have been one of those people that when I sort of lost faith in myself, you helped me recover it. So I'm so excited to be able to share your story. Thank you, Meg. I really didn't have any idea at the time that you were not as uh, together and uh, confident as you appeared. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or full of self-belief. <laughs> that's okay. Oh, and that's yeah. the beauty of life, isn't it? So I would love to start this conversation with you painting a picture of what it was like for you to grow up in South Africa. All right. I actually grew up, uh, depending on what end number you put on growing up, um, but the first the first six years of my life I lived in Cape Town in South Africa in um, the apartheid regime Um of South Africa, a lot of uh, brewing uh, racial tension and uh, it wasn't a particularly safe uh, place to be uh, for anyone. And then uh, when I was six, my my family decided to emigrate to Australia. So we, um, we sold up everything to um, buy the tickets because we weren't eligible for that scheme that the um, £10 POMs had from from Britain so we had to pay our own way and that's that's the most my parents could do Um, and arrived in Sydney on the uh, Southern Cross ship uh, when I was nearly seven and we were placed first in migrant camps Um, the first one we were the only English-speaking family it was full of displaced people from post-war Greece and Italy and Hungary and I remember these bewildered old ladies in black sitting on chairs outside the door of the Nissen huts, the old army barracks that we were um, allocated to. And I was just, I couldn't communicate with them. And I, 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 I used to just wonder what their stories were. And I, I suppose it kindled in me an, an interest in, um, in people and, and what, what's happened to them in their lives. So there was a, a lot of curiosity in me as a child. And uh, and a, a strong sort of sense of adventure, um, and we were then moved to a, um, an English-speaking migrant camp out near Parramatta. 
uh, where I encountered all these 10-pound poms and some incredibly rough people. <laughs> I'd been brought up, I'd been brought up in a in a, a racial world where um, white people were sort of upper class and black people were lower class. I guess that's the simplest way I can put it from a six-year-old perspective. But I met lots of uh, sort of white kids who were very lower class indeed and threw stones and swore and kicked and and were just horrible. Um, and the, you know, I, I even at that young age, I started to challenge things that I'd been taught and things that I'd taken for granted. So I concluded later that being taken out of the world that you're familiar with and put in a completely new context does does help you to see things from the outside and not just accept everything as as given. And that's been um, I've been very fortunate to be able to do that. So I was an outsider. Um, I we moved around various places before we settled. My mother had a passion for the ocean, and she finally got us. Even though we didn't have any money, she got us to Balmoral Beach, where we rented the bottom half of of a house from a, a naval officer and his wife. And uh, they were very kind to us and probably forgot to put up the rent for, uh, or even collected, I think, for a while. And uh, we were very lucky. But I actually got to grow up for <clears throat> the next seven or so years uh, at Balmoral Beach in Sydney, which was just <laughs> amazing. <laughs> um, so amazing. And uh, but then at 14, we went back to uh, my family split up, and my mother and I uh, and my sister got on the same ship. Uh, it was a bit older then, and we sailed back to Cape Town. And from there, we went north uh, in, a, in a clapped out old car um, she bought secondhand and uh, went in search of her older sister who lived in Rhodesia which is now Zimbabwe, but at that time was Rhodesia. It was three years after Ian Smith had declared um, unilateral independence from Britain. The, the storm clouds were gathering because he wouldn't share power. Um, he, he said that the um, Indigenous people were not entitled to share government or power or even have the vote, and so they started a war about that. So uh, we were very uh, unusual in that we were actually entering a country that was in a in a state of um, conflict and uh, that was something that my mother I think hadn't noticed and her sister had failed to tell her <laughs> so we ended up in this kind of war zone <laughs> and, and I finished my high schooling there um, everyone had a kind of a siege mentality we are white Rhodesians and the rest of the world should be helping us and why aren't they kind of thing and I found it really quite extraordinary all over again to be in another, another social context where I had to pick up cues, make my way, um, make sure I didn't get bullied by, preferably by making the other kids laugh. That was my, my weapon of choice because <laughs> I did attend 10 schools all in all in my life because there was a lot of shifting around. So, so I learned quite quickly uh, that if I made people laugh uh, and was always cheerful, they wouldn't pick on me. In fact, they, they might queue up to be my friend um, because I was some kind of oddity. But at the same time, I felt very much like an outsider. I was just longing to belong, uh, to be somewhere where I really felt at, at home and comfortable. Yes, um, I, had, I, had a, uh, I had a lot of trouble feeling valuable as I was growing up, and, and that's a result of um, difficulties in the relationship with my father. 
Um, and then something really seriously <clears throat> uh, awful that happened to me when I was 14, which I don't really want to disclose, but both of those um, events made me question my worth and my value and it was only much later on that I realised that I did I did have value and that everybody did and I've been sort of I've been talking about that ever since I've been instructing young people uh, that they have worth and value and that everyone else does too that's become one of my sort of mantras and so self-belief is something that I've had to de almost deliberately cultivate but inside me is a, is a core of, of self-belief kernel and um, I've managed by luck and um, some some good experiences in my life to to develop that into something quite strong which keeps me going through the bad times. Oh Wendy your story <laughs> oh gosh I just feel like I've been on a complete roller coaster to have all well, those got experiences, to that's what I'm thinking, to have all those experiences <laughs> before 18, you know, some yeah. people haven't left their family home and, you know, still in the same environment. To have all those experiences is just remarkable and I cannot wait to hear what happens. What happens once <laughs> you're 18, you've experienced these different things, what path do you take as far as a career? Yeah. Well, at 18... Um, I really hankered after Cape Town, which is uh, from um, Harare or Salisbury as it was in those days, is um, a journey of three days and three nights on a train. So it's quite far. That felt like, it felt more like home than anywhere because you have this problem, I guess, as a migrant or double migrant, like where is home? And um, it. Cape Town felt like home. I had been born there. I had some uh, a really nice family of uncle, aunt, and cousins who were a sort of normal family. That I just um, I just wanted to grow up in a normal family, really, and, <laughs> and just sort of do normal things. So I applied for and and got a place at the University of Cape Town when I finished school, and um, managed to get some financial support because my mother had no money and was. Um, she had no qualifications and so she was working um, as a bookkeeper but paid a pittance um, because she didn't have any quals. But, and that taught me a lesson too, you know, get your qualifications. As she didn't have the opportunities, so I made sure that I, uh, I grasped every opportunity I could to, to borrow money, to go to university, to study, uh, to pay it back. And I'd always wanted to be a teacher, so that bit was easy because it was, it was uh, easy to get grants and loans from Rhodesian government, they needed teachers. And uh, I picked a course. I had to pick a course that I couldn't do at the local university. Um, so I scoured the um, prospectus for the University of Cape Town, and even though I knew I wanted to be a teacher, I found one that was um, had a broadcasting component, a radio broadcasting component, and so I, I fixated on that. <laughs> said, right, I want to do a BA broadcasting and I can't do a BA broadcasting at the University of Rhodesia, so please, please let me um, go to Cape Town and support me financially. That was my sort of ple letters of pleading to the officials and they, they, they bought it and I went off to Cape Town to do my BA in mainly in subjects that I would later teach but also in broadcasting, which was actually really fun. Um, it was a component of drama 
and we did lots of um, things like microphone technique and all sorts of stuff, which came in handy later as a school principal, of course. Um, and I, I majored in English and I did French as a second a, a sort of minor subject, minor teaching subject, um, English, and I also did the drama. And later on when I came to Australia, uh, I got to teach English and drama and even a little bit of junior French, although that's a bit dangerous. My French is dodgy. So, <laughs> so I had a lovely time. I studied uh, minor subjects like Greek and Roman literature and philosophy that I loved and uh, social anthropology, which I really enjoyed, and I had a wonderful time reconnected with my family and just abandoned my poor mother who was back in Harare waiting for me to, to come back for the vacations. Um, but she she did build a, a bit of a life of her own as well. So, so there I was in Cape Town. But um, then I had to teach back in um, Rhodesia, was still uh, Rhodesia, I had to teach back there because I'd had all this, um, all these grants and loans from the government. I had to pay back the loans and work for them for at least three years as a condition of the grant money. So I thought, well, I've got to teach in that system, which was different from the South African education system. So I'd better go back there and do my postgraduate uh, qualifications at the University of Rhodesia, which I did. Um, thoroughly enjoyed and uh, met some some interesting people, interesting lecturers, one of whom I then married, unfortunately. <laughs> I was a bit dazzled by his interest in me and his intellect and everything else, but he was much older, much, much older than I was and um, thrice, um, thrice married before and not very truthful um, and <laughs> drank too much and all sorts of terrible things. I made a really bad early marriage um, and then had to uh, sort of extricate myself from that. But I learned a lot along the way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then I uh, met uh, Brian, um, and we went off to the um, tea estates of the Eastern Highlands together for for an adventure. And so that was the war had by now finished. Um, most people had survived, but some had not, and uh, there was quite a lot of trauma around. Um, so I was always conscious of what, I guess, what made people happy um, and what what was life for, you know, what, what, what was it all about. And I hadn't been at all religious. In fact, I've been quite anti um, until I had some, I had some strange experiences. Um, I'll just tell you about one. When I was a university student, uh, five of us set off in a car. Anyone with a car, of course, was very popular. <laughs> five of us set off in a car uh, for a day's picnic out up the west coast of um, South Africa when the wildflowers came out. And a bit like Western Australia, their wildflowers are just dazzling. And we'd taken a bottle of wine and, um, you know, a few bread rolls and things like students did in those days, or probably a flagon of wine. And we'd frolicked around in the daisies and there were <clears throat> um, three, three boys and two girls. And uh, we had our picnic and photographed each other in the daisies and all this sort of thing and drank the wine and then drove back. And on the way back, I was sitting in the middle of the back seat um, whether we we didn't have seatbelts in the uh, back seat in those days in cars, and the driver whose car it was was in the front, um, 
and another guy in the front. And we all went to sleep. Um, but suddenly I, I felt a hand shake my shoulder and shook me awake. And as I opened my eyes, I realised that the driver had also gone to sleep and we were now drifting off the road um, towards the, the edge, <laughs> towards the ditch. And I just leapt forward, fortunately not having seatbelt on, leapt forward, bumped him and grabbed the wheel at the same time and he woke up and then we stopped and we sort of regrouped and everything. And it was only afterwards that I realised that the person each side of me on the back seat was still asleep when the car stopped and no, there was no human hand who could have shaken me awake, even though I felt it very strongly. And I, I really started to understand that there's more to this world than we can see. <laughs> much more and so I started thinking about things and I I had a few other experiences which I won't I don't think we have time for but things that just confirmed that yes that there is a spiritual dimension and that we have a spiritual dimension um, and I started exploring that and I had a lovely colleague um, at one of the schools I was teaching he was the art teacher and he was a he was a con committed Catholic and was actually preparing to enter the priesthood. Um, and he, he sort of befriended me and we just had some lovely kind of conversations in the lunchroom which made me think about things. So eventually I did, um, I did sort of commit to a faith and I did become an Anglican actually because that was the local church and I thought I wasn't so sure about those Catholics and their... Um, particularly their attitudes to women. <laughs> was, uh, yeah, so I just I chose to, to become an Anglican. It seemed to resonate with me and I wanted something a bit sort of middle of the road, not too extreme. And um, so that started and I also thought I'd like to have my children baptised but I didn't want to just be tokenistic about it. I wanted to go into it and find out what it was all about. And that faith has actually sustained me a lot over the years, even though I try not to sort of shove it onto people, but it it has been a, an enormous source of strength and comfort and um, good things have have good things have come from it and I, I think I'm still learning, um, still going deeper, but uh, it's it's been an important anchor point for me and I think with well-being you need those sort of things that anchor you, whatever they are. So that's one of mine. Oh, wow. It's just so interesting to hear the different stories that we go on, the different journeys and, you know, a simple picnic, how that could have mm. completely changed yeah. your life or your friend's life yeah. and how that could have gone. And then thinking about what was it like teaching in this area? Like what was it like? those first years of teaching in such a probably it sounds like a disrupted environment mm. with, and the students I'm guessing were disruptive or like how does it, how does it, how, what was it like? The students, uh, no, traditionally the students in, in Zimbabwean schools were, it, it was quite a disciplined, well, it was actually a very disciplined society. It was a bit like, Australia 50 years ago. You know, the cane was very much in, in use um, for boys and it was quite quite conservative, quite, um, you know, manners were 
very important. Uh, boys had to raise their hats when they um, passed a female teacher and they had to call you ma'am and this kind of thing. Um, the, the structure was very orderly. Uh, I suppose a, a little bit would look a little bit militaristic perhaps to Aussies. I mean, we called the boys by their surnames, you know, um, Jones and Smith and <laughs> sort of thing. Um, and there was quite a lot of professional distance between the teacher and the student. We weren't supposed to get involved in their personal lives. And um, I remember, yeah, one day setting an English essay about how will the way you've been brought up um, affect you when you become a parent. I'm not sure where I got that title from, but it was, you know, apropos of something at the time. And this boy wrote about how he would not be harsh to his um, children and he would not be cold and he would not be emotionally distant. And, and I, I just realised that he had a very difficult relationship with his own father and he was trying to tell me about it via this essay and I I suddenly realised that students' mental health was was a thing. I mean, it was they weren't just uh, kids on legs who learn stuff. It wasn't all just academic. And uh, you know, I'd been taught that their personal and private lives were none of my business, and um, you know, never to go there. But I realised that there's this whole thing missing. That how can how could that boy learn um, when his he was crying out for help and there really wasn't any much at that time? Um, thinking about that sort of thing did lead me to volunteer to join the uh, Samaritans, which is a telephone counselling service, a bit like Lifeline here. Um, and I did that in my mid-20s. And I had to be a telephone counsellor because uh, the face-to-face counselling didn't work because a couple of clients I went to see said, you're just, you're just completely too young. You can't possibly understand. <laughs> didn't give me a chance to explain that. I'd actually seen quite a lot of life already. So I was, I was one of the youngest um, Samaritan volunteers. So they put me in the, in the duty room and I had to answer the phone all hours of the day and night. Uh, from people who were threatening to kill themselves. And it was my job to kind of talk them off the ledge, so to speak. And um, I did that for a, a couple of years and became more and more interested in um, in things like well-being and mental health, which were really not talked about much at all in those days. So teaching, as I said, was very much uh, an academic endeavour uh, and there was sport and there was, you know, culture as in music and things, but um, there was this kind of veneer of civilization, I suppose, and um, good manners. Somebody could, they, they didn't, they weren't disruptive. They didn't act up. And if they did, they got the cane, certainly. Well, I spent most of my early career in a boys' school and, uh, and that was the norm. Wow, um, that sounds so um, different to where you finished up your career. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> ah, like a completely different experience, but then how the depth of the experiences that you had allowed you to be the leader that you were and are. I suppose. I mean, it, my kindergarten teacher on my kindergarten report said 
said Wendy is a natural leader and the other children um, want to follow her. So I, I don't know what that meant at, at that age, but it seems, I don't know, I've always just, <clears throat> always just had, had ideas, I suppose, and because of the need to the need to be liked and the desire to be liked because I don't want to be bullied or rejected or whatever, and that, that need to belong um, made me try hard to um, connect with other children and then, and then other people and to be aware of um, perhaps sensitive to them. So I was a kind of others-focused from a young age, which I think is an advantage if you're going to be a leader. Absolutely. And I'd love you to um, talk us through when you became principal, what were you thinking about how you're going to shape that experience and that culture? What was your curiosity there? Um, I just wanted, I just wanted the school to thrive and I just wanted everyone to, um, to be, as enthusiastic and passionate about this place and this community as as I was, because I'd fallen in love with, um, I suppose we can mention it. Hey, I'd fallen in love yes. with Glenny yes. <laughs> when I'd seen it because um, we'd looked up some old friends from Zimbabwe and they happened to be in Toowoomba, and um, we went to visit. And uh, the man, Sandy, he said, "Oh, come and look at my school. I'm teaching at Toowoomba Grammar." So we went and duly, you know, looked around and admired that beautiful school. And then his wife, our friend Patsy, Patsy Sanderson, I don't know if you ever met her. No, I think she left before your time. Uh, she said, well, I, I also teach at a beautiful school, so let's quickly go and look at mine. And so we drove up Perry Street and there was Glennie and I just saw that track and the buildings and I thought, oh, wow, I could belong here. I just felt I could belong. And then, then I had a sort of lowly worm moment. No, I'm just a lowly worm. I'm not nearly grand enough. This place is grand and majestic. And, and I remember thinking the same thing when, um, to cut a long story short, I finally ended up getting, getting shortlisted for an interview for the top job. I couldn't believe it, just how fate had sort of delivered this to me, um, this opportunity. In fact, I nearly didn't, I nearly didn't apply because I'd, didn't think I could handle the disappointment if I didn't get it. So I had to really talk sternly to myself and say, don't be stupid, Wendy. Of course you're not going to get it if you don't apply, you know, and, and you'll survive. You, you're very resilient and you'll survive the disappointment if you don't get it. So just go for it, you know. I've had to talk to myself over the years. Um, so I did and I got an interview. Wow. And I was walking up the driveway and I thought, no, no, I am but a lowly worm. I do not. <laughs> I don't know if you remember lowly worm. He was in a, a sort of, he was a cartoon. He was a cartoon worm. <laughs> and he was, he was very lowly, but he would, he would make quite good observations about life from his little hole, little worm hole. <laughs> he looked a bit like a sort of loonig, you know, um, character but anyway so lowly worm looked up at this grand building and thought nah I was completely daunted but being a bit of a a bit of an actor and you know winging it I kind of swanned in there and I remember saying ridiculous things in my interview you know it was (laughs) 
all set up this long table in, in this huge grand room, which turned out to be my office later. <laughs> and there were about six people, members of the council, looking very stern, you know, and they and they looked at my and I'd come from, well, I was currently at a co-ed school in Harvey Bay. And they looked at my early teaching, uh, which was in a boys' school, and they said, well, what do you know about girls' schools? You know, you never taught in a girls' school and you've never, uh, you never worked in a boarding school. And I mean, lamely, all I could say was, well, I am a girl. <laughs> and, you know, it sounded so pathetic. <laughs> and I've, I've um, you know, I've lived away from home and in all sorts of, difficult place all my life so I'm sure I could learn and I've lived in rural areas so I'm sure I could learn to relate to borders and and the border experience and you know goodness knows why they gave me the job but um thinking back on some of my answers they were pretty lame and uh anyway somehow someone gave me the opportunity so I assumed that um you know a divine being had somehow had a hand in it and therefore I was meant to be there and therefore I'd better get on with it and just make it the very best school that I could and the happiest and the, um, the I wasn't interested in school reputation. I was interested in um, each girl's um, best interests. I always, I always had a thing about what's in, the, what's in the child's best interest here and then second to that was what's in the member of staff's best interest. So I was always focused on that. I wasn't focused on league tables or how many OP1s we got or whatever. Um, I just, I took the all she can be kind of mantra and I turned it into the school, all the school can be, and it's for the girls so that each one is all she can be and hopefully a whole lot more than she thought she would be. That was the second part of, <laughs> you know, I wanted I wanted it to be a, a, a wonderful place to to belong to. And I felt that I, you know, once I got over the shock getting the job and once I'd worked through the imposter syndrome, which I naturally had, you know, as soon as they find out how little I know, um, I'll get the sack and it'll be so embarrassing. (laughs) That lasted about six months um, before I thought, actually, I do belong here. Um, I can can do well here. Um, and And so I just just went for it. I just put a lot of, um, the, the school was a, a bit run down, actually. It was struggling a bit. And so I had to work hard to to make it better. Well, and you certainly thing, did that. Uh, I think it was it 12 years? You're, 15 and a half. Oh, 15 mm-hmm. and a half years mm-hmm. of giving it your all, your heart, your soul, your spirit. I did. I did. I used to cry when I made early speeches, you know. I used to get all choked up because I just cared so much about the place. It was a place that needed love and I was, you know, I have a lot of love to give and I just gave it. (laughs) Yeah, that is just, it is just so magic to hear that pure love of what you do and also creating an environment for other people to feel the freedom to be who they are. And then maybe if they're not quite sure who that is yet, to have the freedom to try, try Mm. on different things and to explore and to become all you can be, even if you're not sure what that be is yet. 
That's right. But you see, you, I mean, you, you think that I helped you, but you helped me because there was, there was a lot missing in that well-being space and particularly in the middle years, you know, there were a lot of, lot of rumbling around and, and disengaged kids and, you know, the whole middle years curriculum drive has been set up because students tend to disengage around those middle years. Um, and you turned up at just exactly the right time with your, your CV and your ponytail and you just had <laughs> energy and, and ideas. You had ideas and obviously stacks of intelligence and drive and, oh, I thought, yeah, we want some of this. We do. So it wasn't just me helping you or anything. It was you came along at the right time and I, I firmly believe that a lot of people did come along at the right time when when the school needed them and I think that was um that was part of the sense I had that that we were on a we were on a sort of spiritual journey it wasn't just um it wasn't just about the business of education or the economics or the financial statements or whatever we were doing we were doing we were in the legacy of Benjamin Glennie um you know he was priest who was a nearest Thing the Anglican Church has to a saint in uh, in Queensland, apparently I was told by an archbishop. So I reckon he was looking after us. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, and I think that so many people listening can think of the people in their life that have opened doors for them when they potentially thought it was closed, or there was you know feeling a bit hopeless at times. And then these people come into your life and mm. see you in a different light, and you rise to that vision what of other people and how they see you and so from everything that you've experienced yes. you know like it's a lot you have had yeah, it is you have had and continue to have such an incredible life every time we catch up what you're up to is always so exciting <laughs> like oh living the dream like every every time there's always something interesting and thought-provoking and I would love to know from you from all of this what has life taught you? Oh, life has taught me that it's that it's a gift, that it's a privilege to be alive, and that what and that we are all very valuable, incredibly valuable, much more valuable than we can ever imagine, and that we need to learn to value others. And if we can value others and seek the best for each other, if everybody just could seek the best for the other people around them in this world, I mean, it would be a much, much happier place, you know, instead of I don't know what. Um, but I just don't understand why people don't want to seek the best for those around them and why they learn or are allowed to learn to be selfish and self-seeking and greedy and all those other nasty things. Um, I firmly believe that in the enough principle, so you either have enough or not enough. Um, I don't need a whole lot of money. I just need enough. I don't need um, a whole lot of recognition. I just I just need enough to um, make me smile. You know, we don't need that much and we we all have so many personal resources to give and it's the it's the relationships it's the the love you can spread and the the relationships that you can form that make life really worth living and i also actively pursue beauty i mean i'm 
I, I, I don't have vast amount, I don't have vast wealth, but I've somehow managed to manoeuvre myself so that if I look to my left, um, I can see the sea. You know, the sea is really, really important to me. Um, I grow flowers on my balcony because because I want beauty around me. Uh, I don't want things that cost a fortune or things that are huge. Um, I don't, you know, I don't need much in the material sense, but I'm very richly blessed with the relationships I have, the people I who let me love them and the people who love me, and I think that's the most important thing. Absolutely. And so what advice would you give to your earlier self so maybe around this 35 year old mark that might be kind of helpful (laughs) (laughs) well by 35 actually I was I was in a good place um I had I'd married um Brian I had two little ones uh I knew I wanted to bring them to Australia because Zimbabwe was becoming uh more and more difficult place to be and I knew that uh, and I I had gained entitlement to Australian citizenship and I knew that there would be a future for us all there. So I was plotting to leave but I was waiting until my little one was out of nappies and uh, had stopped flinging porridge around, you know what I mean, (laughs) when they'd sort of got to a slightly more civilised age and then... um, then I wanted to bring my family to Australia. So uh, at 35, my children were three and one, um, and I was waiting till they were <clears throat> uh, six and four, which is when we did, in fact, come back. Um, but, yeah, so I would have said to my 35-year-old self, be gr- immensely grateful for everything you have. You have... You found a wonderful husband, you know, having had a disaster the first time around. I mean, who gets a second chance like this with this wonderful man? Um, you have two beautiful children, so many people who don't get that opportunity. Um, you're still living in a place where you have servants to help you <laughs> bring them up. Where you can say, can you just push around the garden for an hour? I'm going to lie on the bed. Um, or, you know, you can, you have so many options. So I was very lucky in that way. Um, so I would have told myself to be grateful and not to worry that um, I was going to leave them, well, to be brave. I would have told myself to be brave too because what we were looking forward to was not being able to bring any money with us from Zimbabwe, not being able to bring much in the way of, of goods or possessions, so we would start again here in a couple of years' time with um, 12 suitcases, five tea chests of personal belongings, two children and 150 Australian dollars, and that was it. Um, So I was telling myself, I would have told myself to be brave. You can do it. You, You will get a job, a teaching job in Australia, but at that time I had none of those and we had... Um, nothing to come to in terms of work. Um, I must have applied to about 100 schools by letter from Zimbabwe and I I think I got two replies and both of them were thanks but no thanks. So I had to stay strong and keep my self-belief high. 
uh, I would have told myself that it will work out. You just have to trust and be brave. Um, That's pretty beautiful advice. Is that all right? (laughs) Yeah, I think that is just beautiful. You know, it sounds like, you know, having that faith that things will work out and to be brave. And I would love you to um, just share a little bit of advice for people at the moment that are feeling a little bit worn down by life. Mm, What would you like to share with them? Well, I'd like to... I'd like to remind them of what Stephen Fry says. Um, Stephen Fry is bipolar and he has refused medication. I heard an interview with Stephen Fry. Everyone knows who Stephen Fry is, I hope they they do. He's sort of comedian and actor and writer in England Um, because he said he wanted to to experience the highs as well as the lows and he didn't want to take medication which would just keep everything sort of on an even keel because then he'd miss out on the highs. So it was how was he going to cope with the lows? And he said he realised that <clears throat> in, in times of trouble and when he's feeling down, he's, he just thinks about it as weather. So the weather comes and the weather goes and you have no control over the weather. And the best you can do in bad weather is shelter from it and kind of bunker down and take care of yourself and not make major decisions and just know that it will go away eventually and that the, you know, the good times will come and the good weather will come. And I know now people are struggling with this whole COVID business and it's going on an awful long time and it's affected people's lives um, really badly. But it will pass. It will get better. And they need to say bunker down, think of it as an extended weather system which will eventually uh, pass. And taking care of yourself uh, means making some really sensible choices about about sleeping well and eating well and not sort of letting yourself go down the gurgler. Um, Mm. Shortening your vision to just what is the next thing I need to do? Uh, What is one thing I can do today that might make me happy? Um, It sounds a bit trite. And it takes practice, but also they mustn't lose their self-belief or um, lack of faith. I know that um, there's a lot of loneliness around and that can lead people to increased anxiety and apprehension about future. So trying to stay connected with whoever they can, however they can, um, is important. That is such a beautiful offering for people to think about, you know, life, and life chapters is the weather and that, you know, sometimes it is, sometimes it's sunshine and easy and we're out and about and sometimes it's just raining and it's not Mm. stopping and we have to bunker down. I think that is just so beautiful. So to pull this all together, I would love to ask you, well, invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for doing that? Sure. What have you got? Yeah, so the first sentence is, I am inspired by. I'm inspired <clears throat> by nature, like the sea and um, the, beauty, the beauty of nature, trees, flowers, animals, people, everything. The whole created world just kind of hums for me, so I'm inspired by nature, <laughs> including and, humans. <laughs> yeah. And when life feels hard? 
when life feels hard, I just stop and take stock. Um, I know there's that old saying about counting your blessings, but I I just think of <clears throat> would, would I really want it any other way? Um, and and also what can I learn from this? When when life gets really hard, I think there's a lesson in all of this. I need to find it. Mm. An underrated skill is? In me? In general? Oh, <laughs> oh right. An underrated skill is is brightening other people's days, I think. You know, <laughs> it's um, but it's got to be genuine and it's got to be um, it's got to be thoughtful. That kind of have a nice day stuff at the supermarket checkout is it's okay, but it's it's not not really enough. Um, I think little little acts of kindness are and people who think of them and notice things um, and do little, doesn't matter how small, little things for other people often unrewarded. I think that's an underrated skill. It's, it's a real skill to be that sensitive to other people. Absolutely. And to finish off, I am looking forward to. <laughs> I'm looking forward to everything i'm looking forward to this afternoon i'm looking forward to this evening tomorrow uh next week i uh i shouldn't be telling you this outside queensland but next week i get to go to hamilton island for a week so i actually get, get to get to go for a holiday so i'm i'm just looking forward to every new day because every day is different and brings new opportunities and um every morning i wake up and i'm i'm grateful to be alive Wendy, thank you so much for sharing your story, your wisdom, your warmth, your practicality with us today. And I know that people will really learn some beautiful lessons from hearing your story. Thank you very much. Oh, you're such a dear. Thanks, Meg. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks, Wendy. What a story, what a woman. Wendy's life story inspires us to all dig deep and find out what really matters to us and what anchors us in our life when it can feel uncertain. Before I go, I invite you to reflect on two questions. Number one, what is one thing you want to remember from this conversation? Number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to support your well-being? I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email or follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. See all the links from this episode in today's show notes. Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing wellbeing education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.